Goodman, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing The Scarlet Pimpernel. He gives the Frenches nothing but frustration. Sink man, he's a spoil sport. Each and every damn decapitation, he cuts short. <laughs> inspired, Highness, inspired! Right, sir. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. If you donate at least $1 a month via Patreon, that's patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, you are hearing this episode on a Monday. That's right. I hope your Monday is going well, and if it's not going well, I hope this can prove to be a high point in your Monday. Now, if you are not a Patreon donor, you will be getting this on Wednesday, of course. How is your week going? Hump day, baby! (laughs) I hope that your week has been going well. Of course, we are in an ongoing, stressful, anxiety-ridden situation, so if you are getting through the day, that is a victory in and of itself. Me, myself, I am sitting here. I am, of course, sans Benny, sans Patty, but I do have a steaming cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. You know, we really don't, we really don't talk about them enough. And with all of these musical shout-outs coming down the pike, we have to focus on five, six, seven, eight now more than ever. They are a mom-and-pop business. Their brand, their their product is rock solid. It's rock solid. Now, they don't put rocks in the coffee. I'll just say that right now. I'm going to prove it right now by taking a long drag on my mug. My mug has Shakespeare quotes on it. <laughs> Love comforteth like sunshine shine after, you know, I'm holding the mug. I don't want to drop it. I can't twist my wrist that much. I'm going to take that drag right now. Yum, yum, yum in my tum, tum, tum. Going to set the mug down now. That was the sound of the mug. Look, we're in the opening segment. I want to just stretch out. I want to loosen up the muscles a little bit. You know, normally we kind of speed through this opening segment so we can get to our subject for the week. But I just want to, I want to relax a little bit. I just want to do some yoga poses. I want to do some deep breathing. And I want to talk about cuties. Yes, that's right. We have a brand new, very substantial update in regards to the cream pie cuties. Beauty Club. We have a couple of suggestions from listeners, and then over the last two weeks, I have compiled a list of men. Yummy men who need to be in the club, and they are. They are in the club now. But let's start with those listener suggestions, shall we? And then I have some hot gossip. We're going to talk about the club, the Green Pie Cutie Club, and then we're going to get some hot gossip from Benny, direct from Benny. So let's start with the listener suggestions. Okay, so from Twitter user 
Theater, LXFN Theater, we have this suggestion, Jonathan Groff from Spring Awakening. Lots of credits beyond Spring Awakening, but that's one of his seminal credits, one could argue. I say yes to Jonathan Groff. Get in the club, Jonathan. I took the little velvet rope and I pulled it back and you can step through. Come on in the club. Come on in the club. The music is banging. Cream pie, cutie club. Cream pie, cutie club. Is it as good as cream pie, cutie club? No, but you can never be the original. The remix is never as good as the original. Ooh, I bet a lot of gay men would come after me for saying such a thing. I have 14 exam- Okay, just calm down. I made a listicle. Okay, so let's get another suggestion here. Twitter user Lydia Kirks suggested Christian Borle from Falsettos. Okay, I only wrote down one credit for each of these guys, okay? So I know that Christian, he's been all over the place. He was in Smash. But yes, to Christian Borle, he's in the club. Now, Lydia also suggested Bruce Pinkham. And unfortunately, Lydia, I have to say, I did a Google image search for Bruce, and I have to say no to Bruce. He just, he doesn't do it for me. As we all know, there are only two requirements for getting into the Cream Pie Cutie Club. One, you have to have at least one Broadway or West End credit. And two, you need to be able to put me on my back and turn me into a cream pie. But I have to want that. <laughs> Bruce, unfortunately, did not leap over that final hurdle, so I'm sorry, Bruce, you are not in the club. I cannot, I cannot pull back the velvet rope and allow you to come in. I'm sorry. Now, here's my list of new additions. We have a long list here. We have David Diggs from Hamilton, Conrad Ricamora, Yum Yum from The King and I, Matt Doyle from Company, Tony Yazbeck, I mean, come on, his show flying over sunset, it hasn't even opened yet, but he, oh, how can you deny his legacy? His cream pie cutie legacy. I mean, come on. Darren Chris from American Buffalo. A lot of other things. Get the hell in here. Come on. All right. Andrew Rannells from Falsettos. Get in here. Jake Gyllenhaal. Sunday in the Park with George. Nathan Lane. We have to put him in there. Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. He's Timon for crying out loud. Get in here, Timon. Douglas Sills from the Scarlet Pimpernel. Of course, we have to honor Douglas. And in the process, we are honoring our Patreon donor, Liz who wanted us to talk about the Scarlet Pimpernel this week. And finally, on my list of new additions, Wesley Taylor from SpongeBob SquarePants. So 12 additions in total. We have a huge, yummy, rich, very healthy. All of these men seem very healthy to me. And I just need them to fucking throw me on my back and turn me into a fucking meringue. Turn me into a quiche. Fill me up. So 12 additions in total. We're going to put that away. Now let's get that gossip. From Benny, we all know Benny, we love Benny, we love Patty, but this gossip is coming straight from the Big B. The Big B is what I call him, Big Bird. Actually, I rescind that nickname. Big Bird is not the new nickname for Benny. Benny would not like that, and I am making that prediction right now. So Benny and I have been... <laughs> Over this last week, we have been corresponding via email. We do that all the time. But in the middle of one of our more, you know, professional work-related conversations, Benny told me that he received an email from someone who is working on the Tennis Podcast. That's right. Now, if you're familiar with the show, if you're familiar with our history, we have a very strange relationship with the hosts of a tennis podcast who share a studio space with us under normal circumstances. Now, of course, in current 
current circumstances, we haven't seen, we have not seen hide nor hair of these two guys, these two ridiculous men who do not understand us, and we do not understand them. They have been very rude to us. And Benny, at one point this past week, or maybe the week before, received an email, I think, from one of the two, I'm getting this right, I believe, one of the two hosts. I wouldn't name them on mic, but I'm trying to remember which one exactly. One of these two guys, I can't remember, they're, they're like the Winklevoss, the Winklevoss twins from the fucking social network or whatever. They apparently thought that they were reaching out to their sound engineer, their Benny equivalent, their Patty equivalent, and Benny did not open this email. Benny is very professional. You know, he's not going to rake the muck if he doesn't have to, but he did tell me the subject line apparently was, fix this audio today. <laughs> it was this very... <laughs> Very pointed, all caps, a lot of exclamation points, and there was an attachment. You know, there was that little paper clip. So there apparently is some sort of scuttlebutt, some dust getting kicked up over on the tennis podcast side of things. I'm feeling a little bad for whoever their engineer or their producer is. You know, it might be one and the same, some, someone doing double duty for these two guys. My good lord. And of course, Benny recognized this guy, this host's email address because, uh, for God's sake, when you, let's just say this, when you rent the studio space that we do, when we go in there, we have a great deal. We have a great situation there. We pay almost nothing. It's a really, ooh, it's, and it's all thanks to Patty, by the way. Patty really got us this amazing deal. I don't know if these uh, two other guys are going to be there for that much longer. I'm surprised that they haven't been kicked out of the space considering the construction and uh, the construction, if you remember that. Oh, so here's the thing. When you are a part of this studio space in general, you just get automatically added. We have tried to get out of this. You get automatically added to this newsletter, this enormous chain, and they do not BCC. Let's just say that. <laughs> Whoever's in charge of putting that thing together, I do know who that is. I'm not gonna put I'm not gonna put their name out there either. But you get to see everybody. So Benny and Patty, of course, are very familiar with all of these people, and they're they're friends. They're you know they have comrades and peers in the engineering and producing game. So we know. <laughs> and there was no follow up. Benny did not receive an apology from this guy. For all we know, he's this guy from the tennis podcast is sitting on his and going, "What the fuck? Why haven't I? Why haven't I received my fixed audio? I told them to fix it today." They are such jerks. <laughs> that is the nastiest thing I will say about them. I feel better delivering that gossip to you. I feel stretched out, don't you? Okay, let's get to the show facts. Show me the show facts regarding the Scarlet Pimpernel. All right, okay. Now, I want to thank Liz for pointing me in the right direction when it comes to this week's research. I won't be exploring all of the avenues from Pimpernel's history, but my summary should prove to be thorough. Should. Emphasis on should. Now, the Scarlet Pimpernel was a 1998 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on November 9th, 1997 at the Minskoff Theater. The marketing campaign leading up to opening night involved billboard ads, which makes sense, and putting the face of star Douglas Sills, a recent cream pie cutie inductee, they put his face on milk cartons. This doesn't make sense to me, as the Scarlet Pimpernel is never missing, which is what you imply by putting someone's face on a milk carton, right? The identity of the Pimpernel is always in question, to be sure, but he never vanishes from the story. Seems like a waste of money. Why didn't they call me first? It was eventually decided that the show would undergo heavy revisions, and so for six weeks the cast rehearsed Pimpernel 2.0 while performing Pimpernel 1.0 for audiences. In order to finalize these changes, the show temporarily closed on October 1st, 1998, before 
reopening at the Minskoff on October 10th, 1998. The show closed again on May 30th, 1999, and was revised even further before embarking on a short summer tour. I believe it was only a three-city tour. This version, Pimpernel 3.0, opened on Broadway at the Neil Simon Theater on September 10th, 1999. Now, this long and complicated run officially came to an end on January 2nd, 2000, with the show having logged a total, a sum total of 772 performances. This takes into account Pimpernel 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, to be clear. After closing on Broadway, yet another version of the show, Pimpernel 4.0, was created for the sake of a national tour. According to my sources, and again, thank you to Liz for directing me to these sources, the version one can license for regional and school productions is closer to Pimpernel 3.0 than any other version. Some additional context, Pimpernel was one of the first musicals to have a dedicated online fanbase. Known as the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, or Leaguers, they played a large part in ensuring ensuring the show's second leg at the Minskoff and reappearance at the Neil Simon. They boosted ticket sales, wrote to the producers, etc., etc. You'd think the leaguers wouldn't be interested in seeing their show revised so heavily, but I suppose keeping it alive in any form was their primary goal. I've also learned that online fans of Wildhorn's Jekyll and Hyde are known as Jekies, and I gotta say, that's Awful. Just terrible. Now, The Book of the Scarlet Pimpernel was written by Nan Knighton. It is based on the 1905 novel by Baroness Orksy, which is itself an adaptation of her hugely successful stage play. It ran for over 2,000 performances on the West End for crying out loud. We stand. The Baroness's masked vigilante inspired the creation of such iconic figures as The Shadow, The Phantom, Zorro, and Batman. So there you go. The music for The Scarlet Pimpernel was written by Mr. Frank Wildhorn. The lyrics were were by Nan Knighton. Hello again, Nan. The director was Peter Hunt. The musical director was Ron Melrose. The choreographer was Adam Pelty. Scenic design, Andrew Jackness. Lighting design, Natasha Katz. Sound design, Carl Richardson. And costume design, Jane Greenwood. And the original Broadway cast included Christine Andreas, Terrence Mann, Douglas Sills, who, huh, trivia, first auditioned for the show in California with a song from Jekyll and Hyde, that being Someone Like You. I like that little tidbit. Let's continue with this cast rundown. Down, shall we? Eric Bennyhoff, Bill Bowers, Broadway debut. Hello. Pamela Burrell, Giles, and I do apologize, Giles, if I inevitably get this name wrong. Giles Chiazon. Let's do that. Giles Chiazon. Chiazons. <laughs> Fun. Dave Clemens, David Cromwell, RF Daly, Ed Dixon, James DeBoss, William Thomas Evans, Alan Fitzpatrick, Jeff Gardner, Philip Hoffman, Maureen Jehan, Broadway debut, James Judy, Ken Lady, Broadway debut, Adam Petty, Sandy Rosenberg, Broadway debut, Ron Sharp, Tim Shaw, and Elizabeth Ward. Tony nods. The show was nominated for Best Musical, of course, Best Book of a Musical, Nan Knighton, and Best Actor in a Musical, Douglas Sills. Unfortunately, out of those three nominations, no awards. Three nominations in total, zero awards. It's unfortunate, but we have to accept these results. Oh, such fools those Tony voters were back in the day. Now, when it comes to the plot, Wikipedia only provides a plot summary for the fourth version of the show. 
show, I wanted to focus on the plot structure, the events of the plot as they occurred in the original, you know, Broadway Pimperno 1.0. Luckily, Liz, hello, was able to send me photos of the OBC album's liner notes, which I have since transcribed. Now, I think it would be a little boring. Normally, I don't like to just read from a source. I like to, you know, put together my own plot synopsis based on other research sources. Now, because this is a straight transcription, I thought it would be a little more fun, a little more entertaining if we brought a nice friend back. Okay, he's zooming in. Okay, I think his audio is all set up. He's a little bit technologically uninclined. I don't know if that's the way you would put it, but it's the Phantom of the Opera. Hello, Phantom. Oh, hello. Yes, it's me, the Phantom of the Opera is here to read to you. Cream Pie Cutie Club. I can do it too, Jonathan. Okay, so let's see. I have the plot description here, so I'm going to be reading it out loud. Okay, so Perry. It starts off with Perry. May of 1794. As the French Revolution reaches its bloody peak, scores of people are slaughtered daily by the guillotine, often without trial or just reason. The condemned Marquis de Saint-Cyr cries out, My friends, tis innocent blood runs through the gutters of Paris. But the avid French mob responds with, Madame Guillotine. <laughs> In England, we witness a beautiful wedding. The groom, Sir Percival Blakeney, Percy, in other words, a.k.a. Percy, hello, and the bride, a French actress by the name of Marguerite Saint-Just, vow their love to each other. Although Percy's friends are stunned at his whirlwind courtship with this French woman, Marguerite quickly wins over the stiff Brits as she urges them to live. But Percy's happiness is abruptly dashed when he receives information proving that his new bride has been secretly spying for the French and was responsible for the recent death of his friend, Saint Cyr. Ah, sending a confused Marguerite off to bed, huh? Who, what? Alone on their wedding night, Percy sings of his heartbreak. Determined to somehow right the wrong his wife has done, Percy gathers, he gathers is what he does, his friends around him, hello, and persuades them to join him in a private war against the inhumanities of the bloody French regime. They will call themselves the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel and work through disguise and diversion to save as many innocent lives as they can. Boarding a schooner to sail to France, Percy and his men fight back their fears. Paris, early July. Percy, a.k.a. the Scarlet Pimpernel, has managed with his men to pull off one clever rescue after another, and Robespierre, leader of the French Republic, is enraged. He orders his chief henchman, Chauvelin, to catch this mysterious Pimpernel instantly, and Chauvelin responds with a fiery determination. Chauvelin, Chauvelin, I do apologize for my mispronunciations. Normally, I don't have this nice French accent, this nice French flavor to my voice, but now it's French Phantom. <laughs> Back in England, Percy and his men have now become virtual caricatures of their dandified, foppish selves in order to deflect suspicion from their heroic activities in France. Marguerite has no idea why Percy has become so distant and inane, and their marital estrangement is a source of constant pain for her. While she confides to her brother on 
Ormond that she barely recognizes her husband, Percy continues his fop act, entertaining guests and household servants as one and all speculate about the identity of their new British hero. Chauvelin arrives in England and pays a visit to his former love and revolutionary ally, Marguerite. <gasps> he asks her to work with him again and help discover the identity of the Scarlet Pimpernel. She angrily refuses, but realizing that Marguerite is unhappy in her marriage, Chauvelin tries to win her to his side, reminding her of the passions they shared early in the revolution. Marguerite sends Chauvelin away, determined to never fall into his crutches. His crutches? No, his clutches again. Alone in the garden that night, Percy looks up to see his wife standing on her bedroom balcony. Although he knows he must regard her now as a stranger, a woman not to be trusted, he cannot deny that he still loves her deeply. Percy and his men are summoned to the royal palace by the Prince of Wales, who suspects they may have something to do with the League of the Pimpernel. They are able to persuade the prince, however, that their frequent trips to France are merely to buy frills and frou-frou. Their only duty as men, they say, is to uphold the banner of beauty. Meanwhile, Chauvelin meets secretly with Marguerite, informing her that her beloved brother, Armand, has been arrested in Paris as a member of the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. He insists she spy for him at Lord Grenville's ball the following night. If she fails to come up with information about the Pimpernel, Armand will be guillotined. Marguerite and Chauvelin eye each other warily as Percy watches them from afar. The three are joined by the full company as one and all wonder who exactly can be trusted in this slippery world. Act 2. The following night at Lord Grenville's ball, Chauvelin commands Marguerite to use her great acting skills and feminine wiles to uncover the identity of the Pimpernel. Meanwhile, Percy continues his public disguise as England's greatest fool, teaching the ball guests a new ballad he's written about the elusive Pimpernel. Marguerite persuades one of Percy's men to have the Pimpernel meet her on the Grenville footbridge at one in the morning. When Percy shows up, she is confused, but makes one last attempt to reach her husband, hoping he may still be able to love and trust her. But Percy leaves her side, returning to stand behind her in the shadows as the Pimpernel. Unable to look upon the mysterious hero, Marguerite confesses her sins to to him in the dark. Yes, she has tried to expose him, and yes, she has spied, but it has all stemmed from Chauvelin's coercion and blackmail. She warns the Pimpernel to run from Chauvelin and begs him to help her save her brother, Armand. Percy sends his wife away and releases his great joy at discovering she has only been an innocent victim. All along, she has been the same woman with whom he fell in love. Percy instantly sets off for France with his men to try to save Armand, but Marguerite also secretly travels to Paris, disguising herself as a French tart. She goes to a bistro late at night where she sings with other tarts and drunken soldiers, attempting to cajole from the soldiers information about her imprisoned brother. Chauvelin, however, is also present and instantly seeing through her disguise, he orders both Armand and Marguerite to be sentenced to the guillotine. Embittered at his realization that Marguerite will never return his love, Chauvelin finally drives her out of his heart. Oh, ooh. 
In prison, many families await execution. A mother and daughter comfort each other, and with death imminent, Marguerite and Armand turn to each other for solace. But Chauvelin has a more subtle trap in mind. Resolved to catch the Pimpernel, he allows Marguerite and Armand to escape. Knowing Armand will lead him to the Pimpernel's hideaway on the French seacoast, he follows them as they travel all night to the fishing port of Mikolan. Mikolan, Mikolan. Here, Marguerite finally learns that the Scarlet Pimpernel is none other than her own husband, Percy. And Percy and Chauvelin confront each other in the ultimate showdown. Ooh! After Percy outwits Chauvelin one last time, he and Marguerite sail happily home to England, renewing the their wedding vows, trusting in each other at last. Full company joins in to celebrate this triumph of the human spirit. Cutting down, cutting calls the end. Oh, Jonathan, it's always a pleasure. I've been in those dusty, musty rafters of the opera this entire time. I, I'm a responsible, self-isolating quarantine stan. I stand a quarantine, but I love to zoom in. Oh, I love a good zoom call, so thank you for this opportunity. I will let you go so that you may continue this episode. Break a leg, dear boy. The Phantom of the Opera is gone from your lives, but not your heart. I just made that up. Oh, I just made that up. Season two, all I ask of you, maybe. Ooh, it's coming in the future. That's very true. That's very true. Season two, all I ask of you in the at some point future. Thank you very much, Phantom. Now, for the purposes of this week's research, I listened to the 1991 concept album for The Scarlet Pimpernel, and I also listened to the 1997 original Broadway cast album. And finally, I watched the Tony Ward's performance of the number Into the Fire. We'll go into that in just a bit. Now, The Scarlet Pimpernel Encore from 1999, that's another release relating to this week's subject. It features performances from newly added cast members and reflects a number of changes made to the score, but in general, I would characterize it as a repackaged edition of the OBC album. If you remember our discussion on the original London cast album of Company, you'll have a fair point of comparison. You should know what I'm talking about. And look, I'm all for Frank Wildhorn bleeding his properties dry. There have been, what, five major English language recordings of Jekyll and Hyde and I own all of them, and yes, I do technically own the Scarlet Pimpernel Encore. He admit it! But we're not talking about it today. I have to draw a line somewhere. Here's a Wildhorn album I do not own, Bonnie and Clyde and a whole lot of jazz, live at 54 Below. No can do, Frank. Uh, it's not just songs from Bonnie and Clyde, Jonathan. Come on, come on, come on. We do the Mad Hatter. We do One Bad Habit. Stop talking, Frank. Here's the thing regarding the 1991 concept album. The concept album is available in full on YouTube. That's that's the tea. That's the hot tea. Does that mean you should dedicate an hour of your life to it should you drink the hot tea? Absolutely not. This is your life we're talking about. If you're a fan of Linda Etter or need an introduction to Linda Etter, I can recommend her tracks without hesitation. We're in quarantine mode right now. God knows we could all use Linda Etter's rich, deeply maternal voice in our ear. Here is what you do not need in your ear. Number one, songs that never made the transition to Broadway because they're severely undercooked. These hamburger patties never made it to the grill, honey. Number two, lyrics that make your hair turn white. Lyrics that make your mouth taste like ash. Lyrics that make your asshole swampy. Example. Marguerite, I thought you knew. I understood 
dark of you Give in to me It's time that we were dancing Marguerite, I thought you knew I understand the dark of you. I'll say that again. Marguerite, I thought you knew I understand the dark of you. Give in to me. It's time that we were dancing. What? Number three, tinny artificial instrumentations that left me wincing out of embarrassment. I've heard soundtracks for CDI games that were more inviting. If you can't afford real musicians, stay out of the studio. And on that note, number four, if you can't afford an ensemble, don't ask the one vocalist you hired to lay down five separate tracks. That's a reasonable workaround if you're laying down a demo, but when you start asking people to pay for this shit, you become a little more than a snake oil salesman. I love you, Frank. I do, but I could not sell this out of a Cracker Barrel gift shop. But like I said, if you stick with the Linda Etter material, you're sure to hit upon some creamy Velveeta goodness. Her version of When I Look at You is positively refreshing. Just the thing for snapping out of a cynical quarantine days. We're citing quarantine a lot in this episode. And I'll Forget You takes a welcome anachronistic left turn with the injection of a spicy sax line. Oh, hell, let's get a little bit of that. Now, do not sleep on Linda's duet with Peebo Bryson, either. You Are My Home may have been overshadowed by another Peebo collaboration, that being Beauty and the Beast, but the song topped out at number 34 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart for a reason. Let's get a little bit of that, too. to the score deconstruction portion of our show. If you're new to the podcast, I should say the Scarlet Pimpernel, the original Broadway cast album of Pimpernel, was a big part of my college dorm room experience. I was not drinking, I did not drink throughout all of college, and I certainly wasn't getting cast or having sex. So a great deal of attention was paid to this album. Oh, what a stud I was between 2004 and 2008, lying in my humble coffin of a bed, gazing up at my Justin Timberlake and Invader Zim posters, just losing myself in this score. Jealous? Let's get a bit of the overture. 
damn, this overture is so toasty and comforting, it's like a tray of fresh buttered biscuits I'm hungry. Wildhorn has crafted an excellent character theme for the Pimpernel via these dignified chonky horns. Oh lord, are they coming? These chonky horns, and by the end of the track, I am fully prepared for a rousing escapade or two. Come to think of it, this overture would serve as an excellent introduction to a Pimpernel audiobook. I'll record one if someone will pay me to do it. <laughs> I know the gutter and I know the stink of the street. Kicked like a dog, I have spat out the bile of defeat. All you beauties who towered above me, you who gave me the smack of your rod. Now I give you the gutter, I give you the judgment of God. gotta hand it to everyone in the ensemble. They are going for it in this opening number, Madame Guillotine. Forget about the chopped heads. Take a look at that scenery. They are ripping it to shreds. Highlights include Women of Paris, come gather your bloody bouquets. Give in, pretty dear. In a year, you will be pretty dust. I love it. Madame Guillotine makes no bones about its stance on the French Revolution, marking those who would classify themselves as righteous arbiters of justice as little more than bloodthirsty packhounds. Moral gray is not a color you'll find in Pimpernel's Crayola set. Do not go looking for it. But if you're in the mood for some transparently gonzo historical fiction, as I often am, step right up. Eh, I'm more of a Three Musketeers fan myself. Well, well, smell you. I'm a sucker for musketeer as well. Like stepping on the air so blindly, I trust you will be there to find me. Like reaching through the blue, I place my faith in you. I do, I do believe these
Now this is what I am talking about. If you've never been slowly consumed by the sweet mass of lime jello that is Believe I'm Hungry, you need to put that on your bucket list today. The Pimpernel engine is fueled by unfiltered, unironic, capital R, romance. The kind of robust sentiment found in Shakespeare sonnets, Civil War love letters, and erotic online fan fiction. Believe, in particular, throbs with that explosive soap opera zest, and it's all thanks to Douglas Sills and his co-star, Christine Andreas. They sound fantastic together, and when they deliver the following lyrics, I get a little horny, not just a little horny, maybe a little bit more. I'm not gonna lie, these tender hearts of ours may be endlessly naive, but we grow strong if we believe this fragile world of ours. Get these kids their own issue of Tiger Beat. I demand Percy and Marguerite pinups and stickers for my bare walls. We've afraid what to do. dropped Vive, I went off. I flew into the gayest lip sync routine you could ever hope to stumble across. I was sitting on my bed when I went into it. The posh gesturing you would have seen, the furtive dips of the head, the scandalous arching of the back. It was a performance for all who live and those who have lived. Keep in mind, I had not sat down with this album for probably 10 years, so the fact that these lyrics instantly came to mind is a testament to Nan Knighton's work. Very sticky. It's like glue. Let us also take a moment to praise Christine Andreas's tremulous vibrato, which is currently my preferred form of ASMR. Give me that quiver, Christine. Make me swoon. Yes, God knows I am a fool. And deluded by his wife, a figure ripe for ridicule, who's lived a thing and useless life. So then play that game. I do not give a tinker's damn.
Percy writhe in anguish could have been a total slog. The perfect opportunity to check one's playbill or do a bump and take a dump in the men's room. But even when the character is at his lowest, Douglas lends him a bright, buzzing quality that kept my attention firmly fixed. My attention wasn't the only firm part of me, if you get my drift, Douglas. Say the phrase, tinker's damn, until I peek, Douglas. Lay me out like a pancake that's destined to be buttered. I'm a quesadilla. Fill me with your guac. Let the lightning strike. Let the flash of it shock you. Choke your fears away. Pull as tight as a fire. Let the fever spike, let the force of it rock you. We will have our day sailing into the fire. Land ho! Into the Fire is a pitch-perfect battle cry that makes the chest swell with pride. It inspires me to take up fencing lessons. Now, will I pay for fencing lessons? No, but I prize inspiration, and it's oftentimes ephemeral nature. While performing this number as part of the Tony Awards, there's a moment where Douglas shouts, Disguises for all! And I'm not afraid to say it left me feeling like a newborn homosexual. My homosexuality was being presented to me for the first time as if it were a book with an unbroken spine. Break my spine, Doug. We get it, you're horny and hungry. Don't forget hungry. What I dig about Into the Fire is how it manages to cram 10 pounds of lyrics into a five pound bag of music. Someone has to face the valley, Russian. We have to rally and win, boys. It's a low-key humdinger of a challenge and Douglas makes easy quicksilver out of what could sound like mush. I have to give it up to the ensemble as well. Their glorious upper register packs a hell of a punch and it's a key component to this number's mighty finish. There was a dream of dying ember. There was a dream I don't remember. But I will resurrect that dream. The river's dream and hills grow steeper. For here in hell, where life gets cheaper. Oh, here in hell, the blood runs deeper. And when the final duel is near, I'll lift my spear and fly, piercing into the sky and higher. And the strong will thrive. Yes, the weak will cower. Who are the fittest? Survive if we wait for the darkest hour. Here we spring alive, then with claws of fire we devour like a falcon in the dark. 
Father Delicious, days of glory, days of rage, and the dream, and the dream of Paris preys on my bones, gnawing night and day, and clawing through my brain, and no, never kneel, never bend, rend him to bits, fight for the beauty of the fight. I'm not a man to hunger for blood, but the spirit can cry to be younger and fiercer and fly, piercing into the sky and higher, and the strong will thrive. Yes, the weak will cower, while the fittest will survive if we wait for the darkest hour. Here we spring alive, then with claws of fire, we devour like a falcon. shows don't get enough credit for their juicy villain themes, and I'm here to rectify that. I will prevail from Wonderland, it honks. Falcon in the dive, a total bop. I had forgotten how much I adore. I wasn't born to walk on water. I wasn't born to sack and slaughter. That's a state fair corn dog dipped in hot mustard. Let me add that lyric. And how can you not fall in step with Terrence Mann's Chauvelin? There's an appropriately steely quality at play here, a chilliness that contrasts nicely with Douglas's youthful, more open-hearted sound. But Mann isn't losing sight of the fun that comes with getting to play the louse. He's not afraid to kick up dust or unleash a lightning bolt or two. See, rend into bits. Bite! I love that delivery. Now, with the understanding that I appreciate Nan Knighton's lyrics, I will say her work on Falcon in the Dive is sloppy. It is. Note the following section. There was a dream, a dying ember. There was a dream I don't remember, but I will resurrect that dream, though rivers stream and hills grow steeper. I'm sorry, what? How does one resurrect a dream they cannot remember? A hill growing steeper. That's a metaphor for adversity I can track, but a streaming river? Rivers stream naturally. It's sort of their brand. If you were to say the river was raging or flooding, I could pick up what you're laying down. As written, this whole line of thought comes off as little more than babble.
Do me a favor and break out a calculator. Determine just how many Lovelorn solos Wildhorn has written for women over the years. Do most of them sound nearly identical? Definitely. Could When I Look at You take the place of Jekyll and Hyde's Someone Like You without anyone taking much notice? Without a doubt. It would not disrupt it would not disrupt that show at all. But When I Look at You still gets to me, despite being one of a thousand purple shades in Frank's paint swatch. Did I create a dream? Was he a fantasy? Even a memory is paradise for all the fools like me. Now remembering is all that I can do. How do you not gobble that up? It's rich with sodium. And then there's this bit of oddball puffery from Knighton. That moonlight on the bed will melt away someday. Completely ridiculous, but do not change a word. Have I made it clear I'm allowed to tease a few of these lines while defending them to the death. That's what I'm doing right now. These patchier sections are like glass paperweights containing frozen air bubbles and tendrils of neon coral, if you know what I'm talking about. They're fragile and cannot survive under the pressure of scrutiny, and so we must protect them. It is wild to consider how the central conflict of this show, that being the marital strife between Percy and Marguerite, could be resolved if anyone was willing to have a conversation or ask a question, but the period in which Pimpernel takes place would not have been conducive to an open dialogue between the sexes, and far less so in an era like the French Revolution, an era of international intrigue. What I'm trying to say is I'm more than willing to suspend my disbelief for the sake of melodrama. Love me, such conjecturing could drive a man insane. And I'm the one to set this gossip quite to rest. The Pimpernel is me. Indeed, and I'm the Queen of Spain. What? The Pimpernel is nothing but a nosy pest. No, the vicar says the Pimpernel's a bishop in disguise. Who gives absolution night and day. Stop it nonsense, don't you know? He's a Maharaja from Bombay. They say he has enormous feet. And that he tends to overeat. I've heard he's fussy with his food. And eats his breakfast in the nude. Is he robust? Or very pale? At least we know he's male. Who is this scarlet pimpernel? Rose. I'm sure I'd fall in love if he would cross my path. Ah, yes, if you could overlook the warts upon his nose. And possibly persuade him he should take a bath. Rumor has it he's Castilian. He's a reckless buccaneer. And I hear he carries several whips. Several whips? He's a sultan from Kabul. With women at his fingertips. They say he's nearly eight feet tall. And yet quite graceful. Holy roll, I'm totally wobbles when he walks. And often twitches when he talks. Is he a dog? He's very deep. Oh, he's losing sleep. Who is this blasted Pimpernel?
the show's titular number, The Scarlet Pimpernel, underscores how everyone wants to fuck The Scarlet Pimpernel. They are exposing their kinks, and they do not care. Oh, I hope he has a pair of enormous feet. Perhaps he takes breakfast in the nude. Oh, I would love it if he had a collection of whips. He should be no less than eight feet tall, and when he fucks me, he should do it on a haystack. To review, the Pimpernel should be a giant farmhand with Sasquatch feet, who A, owns at least 30 whips, and B, can tuck in with a quiche while the breeze tickles his hog. I want his balls out, and I want his tummy filled with fluffy white eggs. Egg whites! Marguerite, don't forget, I know who you are. We were cut from the same surly star, like two jewels in the sky, sharing fire. Where's the girl, so alive and still aching for more? We had dreams that were worth dying for. We were caught in the eye of the our apartment on Thursday morning, I found there were two Pimpernel numbers competing for my brain's attention. The first was Vive, specifically Vive. You have one life, let it be gay. Don't put it off till you're dying. Now is the time to be flying. And when that got old, Vive would be swapped out for Where's the Girl, which you just heard a bit of, specifically this section. I remember days full of restlessness and fury. I remember nights that were drunk on dreams. I remember someone who hungered for the glory. I remember her, but it seems she's gone. I credit the staying power of Vive to its airy, dull whip nature. I can't help but feel the need to crack it open again and again. Whereas the girl has stayed with me because I performed it for... Say it with me, a college class. We get it, you went to college and hungry. Don't forget about hungry. Was this song the best choice for a twink who had not yet turned 21? Was it even in my range? Did I creep everyone out? No, no, and yes. This song is supposed to be sensual and I'm pretty sure I made it horrifying. But enough about me and all of my Feelings. Let us once again focus on the lyrics of Nan Knighton, who seems keenly, if not obsessively, interested in invoking the elemental stars, fire, storms, if it burns, crackles, or rumbles, it will be cited at least twice, if not thrice. Example, Marguerite, don't forget, I know who you are. We were cut from the same surly star, like two jewels in the sky sharing fire. You heard right, we were cut from the same surly star. Surly, as in grumpy. 
It doesn't make a lick of sense, but it must be said once more. Do not change a goddamn fucking word. I don't care if Knighton spent six weeks on that line or six seconds. Its place in the canon must be preserved. Oh, Marguerite, this thing between us is like a frozen hurricane that barfs up sassy gemstones. From a thematic standpoint, I find it interesting how Vivet and Where's the Girl share a common sentiment. This idea that people should reject reservation and embrace their desires. The only difference, the key difference being that Marguerite is telling the Brits to kick up their heels while Chauvelin is trying to strong-arm her into acting as a spy. Let's be real, being a spy is sexy as hell, and I would totally do it. I am now accepting all offers from those who are willing to sing to me. Let me be your spy! Man's duty is to wield the sword, defend the cave, what? A male's duty is to uphold the banner of beauty, and you, as prince of our land, must lead the way. Be an example to your sex. Give your boot a dapper strap, and it's smarter if your garter has some slap. Cravats should be flounced about our necks. Let the royal coattails flap. Be bewitching with some stitching on your cap. Now drape your cape and puff, your cuff embroider those lapels. Be the king of the beasts in pastels. La, but someone has to strike a pose and bear the weight of a well-tailored clothes. And that is why the Lord created men. You're a nincompoop, Blakeney. Thank you, sir. Always said you were. Always said leave the fancy dress to the women. Let me be a Roman. Don a tunic. Bare the legs, eh, what? <gasps> Sink, man! The man's lost his senses! Bare legs! The creation of man involves a hell of a lot of dandy talk, and God on High is all too aware of my love for the dandy. As a kid, my favorite episode of Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater was The Emperor's New Clothes, which starred Dick Sean as an aggressively snippy emperor. I couldn't get enough of that performance. Men can wear powdered wigs and apply minuscule moles to their faces while ordering everyone around? Sign Baby John up. But who couldn't use a dose of the dandy, really? This number is a welcome break, a respite, from the wistful sighs and embittered monologizing of our heroes. It's funny, it's foolish, it's positively body, and if you can't win a Tony Award for riding the line, fill those pantaloons with light! I can't claim to understand how this industry works, not really. P.S. I've determined Vive should be declared the song of this week's subject because I couldn't stop humming it while packing out my notes. Grab up your one golden chance. Darling, so life is such romance. Wonderful line, beautiful. The mist, your lover is beckoning, comes that moment of reckoning, faces change. Even smiles grow strange And we all have so many faces The real self often erases Enticing lies flicker through our eyes Feel the terror forever Even the more you stare in the mirror But hold your own face the wind Your scars year by year, we're falling like stars till there comes the day when, when we sell our souls away. 
once loved Jesus. But finally, treason will seize us. And only fools follow golden rules. We all are caught in the middle of one long treacherous riddle of who trusts who. Maybe I'll trust you. scratching my mustache before we went into the next clip? Oh, I do apologize. That's just my mustache. It's itchy. Quick announcement, everyone. If you're currently majoring in musical theater or acting or what have you, you are now legally required to stage the riddle in a dorm room at 3 in the morning, preferably on a weekday. This new legislation may prove disruptive to your normal schedule, but it's meant to enrich your education. The riddle, 3 a.m., write all of this down. I accept that all I've done throughout this episode is either sing or quote high-strung lyric after high-strung lyric, but come on, can I run to you? Are you true to me? I'll do unto you as you do to me. Manja manja. <laughs> manja manja. Manja manja. Such an appetite I have for it. Listen carefully when Douglas Sills enters this number as he's initially paired with sustained ghostly notes I assume are produced by a keyboard. They're quite, as the French would say, super cool. I'm more than fine with the strategic placement of a keyboard. I'm not allergic to an artificial sound, but it should never serve as a substitute for a proper orchestra. Cut to like three weeks from now when I'm praising some random show for its use of a drum machine. Oh, a drum machine? How innovative. Doof, 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 doof. The two clips you're about to hear are from Only Love and She Was There. Why are we hearing them back to back? You'll find out in a moment. Stop humping my leg, all right? Play the claps. Don't turn away, it's only love. Quietly coming to you. While recording an episode of Jeffrey Scott Parsons, a musical theater podcast, additional plugs pending, I learned of the term park and bark. The term, as it relates to musical theater, may seem self-explanatory, but in case you're like me, dumb, and needs some context, a park and bark song is one for which the actor must plant themselves and sing, baby, sing! No further staging required. If you're fortunate, you may be able to sing in the direction of a scene partner, see Only Love, 
but Wildhorn shows tend to push their actors to the apron for truly isolated solos. See, she was there. Jekyll and Hyde is drowning in park and bark material, and while the Scarlet Pimpernel is comparatively lean in that regard, I would argue Only Love and She Was There are too, too many solos for old Percy and Marguerite. What we need at this point in the show is a fresh duet for these characters, uh, something more complex and revealing than speeches. Could we not at least make room for Percy in Only Love? This is the one moment in the plot where our leads aren't actively avoiding each other, and I am desperate for them to have a conversation. Something to consider, Frank. Others may leave, but you will still be there. Touching the tears that fill my eyes. When I am lost, you totally forgot something. I forgot to mention how a friend of mine was in a production of The Scarlet Pimpernel and showed me their taped performance. This was in college, also known as the only era I can think to pull from in my arrested development quarantine stupor. That performance was my first exposure to a revised version of Pimpernel, and I was decidedly not a fan of the changes that had been made. I was especially bummed to discover how You Are My Home had diminished from this rafter-shaking company number about undying solidarity to a 15-second fart. How do you eliminate the image of a prison filled with people who are clutching onto each other, making it clear their dedication will never waver, even in the face of death? A careless approach to humanity, that's what that is. That change is bunk. I blame you, Frank. I'm putting this all on you. Upon further consideration, I find I was right in calling for an additional duet for Percy and Marguerite. They come together for Believe near the top of Act 1, nuzzle up during Vive, and then do 
not sing again as a pair until a late act two reprise of Believe. Uh, too much negative space on that canvas. We have to fill in some of that, huh? Their time within the riddle does not count as an interaction, by the way, since that entire number is internalized. Frank, what can I say? We have a lot to talk about once this quarantine is over. We are going to the Olive Garden. We are going to stuff ourselves on soup, salad, and breadsticks. We are getting a booth, not a table. And we are going to hammer this out, this show out once and for all. Can you say Pimpernel 5.0? I think you can. And then finally, let's get a little bit of, let's just get the whole thing. The reprise of Into the Fire, which closes this album out. Douglas Sills $1,000 to sing that high note directly into my open mouth. That's it. That's the tweet. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would hear from our lovely sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but we have a new $10 a month patron. It's Robin, and Robin has earned a special musical shout-out. That's right. We are now going to hear that musical shout-out. Thank you so much, Robin. From me, John Pernasek, the musical man, thank you for being a patron. And now, here is that musical shout-out. No more stalling. Robin Leach coming to you live from my steam-powered Zeppelin, thousands of miles above the hurly-burly of modern society. You may be wondering, Robin Leach, the esteemed host of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, the acclaimed television series which aired in syndication from 1984 through 1995. Hasn't he been dead for nigh on two years? Ah, fair listener, that's exactly what I, Robin Leach, wanted you to think. In fact, I've been soaring undetected above your heads in my steam-powered zeppelin this entire time. Did I attend my own funeral? Abracadabra, yes, I did. Did I dress up as an English caretaker and weep as the coffin was lowered into the ground? Abracadabra, yes, I did. And now that I've had a chance to really examine humanity from my steam-powered zeppelin perch, I find I've come to a few conclusions. Conclusion number one, the rich and famous are, for the most part, terrible people who should be eaten while alive. Steal their silverware, polish it up to a blinding gleam, and have at them, I say. Abracadabra, save a juicy thigh or two for me. Conclusion number two. Anyone who gives their money to a good cause should be first in a line at the inaugural cannibal buffet. 
Those who give are those who get, as you land walkers would say. And who should get more than our latest patron, Robin? Dip that cheek meat in marinara sauce and take a sloppy bite, Robin. This one's for you. Hit it! Oh, I do apologize. It would seem the mechanical man I built to serve as my butler and lover has malfunctioned and cannot play the organ at this particular time. But one carries on, doesn't one, from one robin to another. A pioneer ballad for the ages, take it away, me. A five and a six, a five, six, seven, eight, robin. You fill with pride. Sit back, relax, and chew that roasted hide. Oh, Robin, I shout your name on high. And perhaps, if I may, I'll visit you one day. And we'll sit by the fire and roast a rich man's eye. Thank you, dear Robin, and good luck. I would invite you to live on my steam-powered Zeppelin, but I'm afraid I'm too protective of my mechanical man, butler lover. Abracadabra, his name is V8, and he makes me come like a geyser. Goodbye! Goodbye! Final thoughts regarding the Scarlet Pimpernel. While admiring the album art for Pimpernel's Broadway recording, which happens more often than one might expect, I found myself lingering on this phrase, the new musical adventure. Normally, this sort of distinction would strike me as beyond trivial, Diana, a true musical story, anyone? But in this case, I have to say adventure is absolutely what makes Pimpernel stand apart from the rest of the canon. Name another musical that captures the high-flying spirit of an Errol Flynn picture this effectively. The saturated palette and whiz-bang playfulness of early comic books. The steamy sensuality of a masquerade ball. Phantom has a masquerade ball. Silence! The only other note I have regarding this week's subject is that the second act isn't as consistently entertaining as the first, but that drop-off isn't steep by any means. I will always be on board for the Scarlet Pimpernel, as it lulled me into a state of honey-glazed complacency a long time ago. It's the weighted blanket of musicals. Wrap me up, I say. Now, in 1998, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was a show we have covered in the past. That being, do you know it? It's The Lion King. Rawr! And the other nominees that season were Sideshow and another show we've already covered, Ragtime. Now, should the Scarlet Pimpernel have won the Tony Award for Best Musical? I'm going to go ahead and say yeah. <laughs> At first, you know, I was in the shower this morning thinking, well, The Lion King was so, you know, it was such a technical advancement. It was such a visual feast for the eyes. It's still running. Obviously, the cachet of that show is basically bottomless. But let's have fun. <laughs> let's just, let's just say screw it. Well, you know, the lyrics, the Nan Knight lyrics can be sketchy. They're a little all over the place, but the Scarlet Pimpernel, it's just too much fucking fun. It's too much damn fun. Liz, congratulations. We're doing it. We're elevating the Scarlet Pimpernel to the Tony Award for Best Musical. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Now let's rank the Scarlet Pimpernel against all of the other shows we've talked about. If you want to see that full ranking, go to our Twitter profile, at MusicalManPod, click on the pinned tweet, Go to the second tab. It's all right there. I am putting the Scarlet Pimpernel at number 11 between number 10, Urinetown. Okay, so it's we got Urinetown right above the Scarlet Pimpernel, and then right below it is a show that has been moved into
to the number 12 slot as of this week. That's the one change we made. Guys and Dolls is now at number 12. So we got Urinetown, the Scarlet Pimpernel, Guys and Dolls, 10, 11, 12. Fantastic. We do have a nice bit of show-related ephemera for you. This is a clip from a June 6th, 1999 episode of The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Uh, this is a lead-in, actually, to a performance event to the fire. This So the performance took place on the set of her show, but before that, they played this video package of Douglas Sills giving everyone a backstage tour. It's uh, really fun. It's delightful. Douglas Sills is a real fucking cutie pie in it. Uh, so let's hear that clip now. Also, uh, we took a camera crew down to the stage of the Scarlet Pimpernel, and Douglas uh, showed us around. We wanted to give you people who don't maybe get a chance to experience Broadway a little taste of what it's like. Uh, take a look behind the scenes of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Hey, Rosie, thanks for joining us. I'm Douglas Sills, and I play the Scarlet Pimpernel in the new musical, The Scarlet Pimpernel. Now, most shows in New York are on side streets, but we are on Broadway, Times Square. Take a look at that view. And then follow me inside for an incredible backstage tour. I'm the only working guillotine in all of the world. This is frightening, is it not? Really. Sometimes when work isn't going well, we just put ourselves in here and it gets kind of ugly. Back here, we have stored in our modern theater waves. What do you think these are? Giant toothbrushes. No, they're waves. This is an ocean and they spin. Now in the old days, there'd be a guy cranking here and he'd be on union wage, thank God. But today, it's all automated. Now we're in the wig room. Take a look at that hairline. Not since Burt Reynolds have you seen a hairline like that. These are very expensive. These are two of my friends that helped me get through all the disguises in the show. This is Bill, this is Elise. Rosie, do I have a surprise for you? We've made up a costume for you in the show. This is for you, baby. I'm willing to not wear this for a couple of shows if you want to come and do the show. Now you're getting a bird's eye view of our costumes. They spent a fortune, 1.3 million on our costumes, and they're still spending money. I changed clothes 13 times in this show, several of them on stage. My shortest is about seven seconds. Come and see if I can get it done on time. I hope you had a good time on our backstage tour. And now, I'd love to stay and talk with you, but I must become the King Crusader. Bye. Douglas is giving off big Nancy Bottom energy in his crisp little baseball jersey. Uh, hey, buddy, you know I love a hot hot dog at the game of bases and balls. Meet me in the dugout. I'll show you my leather glove. No idea what he's referencing when he mentions his leather glove. I'm guessing it's his butthole? Now, normally, at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discussed next. But I cut off that audio coup. That coup? I cut off that coup. Uh, no, we have a new patron, right? Robin, of course. We got Robin's musical shout-out earlier, but Robin, being a, you know, a $10 a month donor, they get all the incentives that we're going to go into in just a moment. So they are able, Robin is able to select a show, okay? They stop the carousel, our patrons. They stop the carousel, and they tell me what we're going to talk about. They boss me around. And Robin selected a, uh, okay, so it's from the 2005 season. It ran for 500 and four performances, and I believe it was a nominee. It did not win the Tony Award for Best Musical. I hope I'm right. Oh, I don't have to. I don't like doing retractions. I don't like doing them. That show is The Light in the Piazza. The Light in the Piazza. Pizza? I'm hungry. So that's going to be our next subject. That'll come at you next week. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. How you can become a patron. You can donate one, three, or five, or ten 
$1 a month. If you donate at least $1 a month, you get early Monday access to all of our main feed episodes. You get them two days before everybody else. You get a special verbal shout-out each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you so much for being a patron. Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Mark S., Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol. Thank you. As a $1 a month donor, you will also get access to bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, and a full review of Cats and a full review of Emma. I'm actually in the process of planning a new $1 a month bonus episode. It's going to be dedicated to Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration. I am about halfway through that presentation. It's available in full on YouTube for free. And so that that's what our next $1 a month bonus episode is going to be all about. It's been far too long since we've had one of those episodes, and this seemed like a really, really nice subject for one, so we're going to do that. But we're not done with the $1 a month tier. You also get access to Radio Boy, a weekly short-form series for which I take a closer look at myself and the songs that make me feel more like myself. Songs that are not from the world of musical theater. No, 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 no. And then starting on June 24th, 2020, this is big news. We have to make a big deal about this. We recently, we achieved our stretch goal of bringing in a total of $100 a month in total monthly donations, which means that I am going to begin producing a show that I've been talking about for like a year now, much more than a year. It's M3, The Movie Musical Man. This is going to be a monthly series. The first episode will drop on June 24th. As I said, it's going to be all about me watching trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. So that first episode is going to drop June 24th again. So everyone's going to get access to that. If you donate at least $1, you will get access to that fantastic movie musical series. Let's move up to the $3 a month tier. You get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. We heard Robin's musical shout-out. You can get one of your very own. You also get access to season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere. It's all about the high school musical franchise. It's amazing. Let's move up to the $5 a month tier, shall we? You get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast, just like Robin got to do with The Light in the Piazza, just like Liz got to do with The Scarlet Pimpernel. You also get season one, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. I hope you enjoyed that free episode. That was the first episode from that season. If you want to get all 12, all you got to do is become a $5 a month donor. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago review series. I have already reviewed Oslo, Mean Girls, Once on this Island, and Summer. That schedule keeps getting changed around. I get updates about it all the time. Trust me, as those performances come, we will cover them. And you also get this goofy thing that I put out, Shout About It, Volume 1. It's all of our 5, 6, 7, 8 coffee ads and shoutouts from the first 25 episodes. So if you love hearing those wonderful voices and you just want to get that material on its own, it's right there, $5 a month. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus... Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series all about musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed. Ah. Now, as a reminder, right now, okay, so 100% of the funds generated from May through July 2020 will go directly to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. It needs to be done. It needs to be done. Also, we just announced two new stretch goals. Two new stretch goals. $300 a month, $500 a month. These are big signposts that, you know, we 
have a long way to go if we're ever going to meet them, but they're there. I don't want to go in the, into them right now. I want you to go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod and check out those new stretch goals for yourself. And to circle back around to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless real quick, we just made our first donation, actually, to the Coalition, so we're going to be doing that at the top of uh, June and July as well. Of course, it all makes sense. So thank you again for your donations. It's going to a great cause. If you're listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment, give us a five-star rating right out of review. If you're listening to uh, us through Podbean, that's on musicalmanpod.podbean.com. You may also be listening through Stitcher, okay? Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. Keep sending me that hot gossip, Benny. Patty, keep sending me those baby pictures. And, of course, our postcards. Oh, I wish I could show you these amazing postcards. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and, of course, to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, my God. You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off and good night. <laughs>